Welcome to the Nurse Leader Network Podcast with your host, Chris Racinos. Wherever you're going on your nurse leader journey, we're here to help you get there. Welcome everybody to the Nurse Leader Network. We are so thrilled that you are here with us today. Today, we're going to talk about something that's kind of serious. We have like a serious note going on. And it's something that's really important and personal to me. So, you know, I I bring on guests all the time on my podcast around like wellness and making sure that we're staying healthy as nurse leaders. We talk about all kinds of tools, but there's one tool that I haven't brought on. And it's something that, like I said, is really personal to me. So most of my listeners know I grew up in foster care and um, I haven't really shared why that was, but it's actually because my mother had a substance abuse disorder. And, you know, I've sat back on my life and really thought about like, when did it happen? Like, I remember when I was really young that she was a really great mom. And then, you know, around the time of like five years old, things just started going downhill. And I just couldn't quite grasp like what happened. When did she go from like normal mom to an addict? And as I've you know, met folks on my journey, as I've had my own journey, as I've been on this podcast, I have run into people day in and day out that are struggling with addiction. And so today we are going to talk about all things addiction and, you know, really just discuss what does that journey look like? Are you struggling? Do you have a member of your staff that are struggling and how we can get through that journey together? So strap on your seatbelts, get ready, because you're in for another amazing episode of the Nurse Leader Network. So today's guest is Matt from You Are Accountable. Matt, we are so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. And thank you for you know sharing that story. Um, it's so important to talk about. And I know it's uh, hard to talk about as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so taboo. I, I was talking to another nurse leader that I know, and he had, you know, sh- shared his story of addiction. And it was kind of like, you know, we were kind of talking about like, do you share that on LinkedIn? And the conversation was like, no, I don't really share that part of it. Like people know about it, but I don't really share that part of it. And it was interesting to me because it's like one thing that we seem to have shame around or embarrassment around. But the fact of the matter is in healthcare, 10% of our workforce has an addiction. And so Matt, I'd love for you to share your journey. You're not a nurse. But you have a really unique journey, so I'd love for you to kind of tell us how you started You Are Accountable. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, I'll say it's not just 10% of nurses. It's basically 10% of the U.S. population. And and I'll also add that, you know, I I didn't talk about it publicly for a long time either, and that's because of the shame that surrounds addiction. And really what it took me a while to figure out was, like, getting sober was by far the hardest thing I've ever done. And something I should be proud of. Um, and so now, now I, I, you know, wear it as a badge of honor when I talk about it. And I think that helps reduce stigma, but like also like helps me with my healing and help others. But back to the question you asked. So high level, um, my background is actually in technology. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Started my first tech company when I was 14 doing great fixed support. That turned into an EHR company that I built my senior year in college. And um, while I was scaling that company, I ended up uh, really addicted to opiates. Um, I overdosed in 2013. And, you know, really, you know, at that point, and I won't get into too many details, but woke up in the hospital not knowing where I was, really didn't actually want to go to treatment, had to be convinced in the ICU that I needed to go into treatment. 
and you know at, at that point went to inpatient rehab outpatient rehab and you know thankfully was able to you know beat the odds they say like something like upwards of like 85 percent of people relapse in their first year and you know build a really happy life in recovery that company that wasn't doing so hot at the time because I was an active addiction ended up doing really well and I uh, sold it in 2017 and you know after uh, leaving that company I decided to um, go and found you are accountable based on my experience getting sober and what that experience was was that treatment programs do an amazing job you know the 90 days you have there with insurance funding putting you back together but the issue is is that like addiction's a lifelong disease and 90 days isn't enough time to undo like 10, 15 years of maladaptive coping skills. And just the real, the reality is there aren't many support programs um, that are affordable for people to help them maintain their long-term recovery. So that's really what our mission is with You Are Accountable. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing your journey. Because like we kind of mentioned, it's I know it's not easy. Matt, walk me through like, how how do you go from you know, maybe a drinker that's, you know, casual with your friends to like maybe drinking too much and then to like, what's the threshold? Like what, how do you get there? And, you know, I I know I have listeners that in the middle of the pandemic have, you know, used alcohol to help them get through it. Like, how do we know when we have gone too far? Yeah. um, So like the short answer to that, I think, is if you're asking yourself if you've gone too far, you probably have. You know, I, I always joke about like when I was getting sober, I, I really didn't plan on being sober like forever. It was like, I'll do this for a year and then go drink normally like my wife. And, you know, that became pretty obvious to me pretty quickly. Like three months into being sober, I was out with like her family and they each poured themselves a half a glass of mimosa, like drank a quarter of it, then put a paper towel on it and put it in the fridge. And like at that moment, I realized like I never want to drink like that. Like it just like isn't attractive to me and doesn't compute. So my my point is like she would never ask herself if she's drinking too much or using too much. So that's kind of like the first, like I'd say like red flag to kind of examine. But, you know, another metric to look at is like, is is my use having a negative impact on my life? Like, would my life be easier or better off without it? I remember like vividly like watching like like the news like one day when I was like home dope sick actually. And I was just like, how do they have so much energy? Um, because like I just like wasn't able to function like a normal person anymore. So those are some things that I would look at, but also know like when you're an active addiction, like you will do anything to convince yourself that it's not a problem. So how did you like if you'd share with us your journey around like how how did you get introduced to opiates was it friends did you and i asked this question because for nurses it's easy access a lot of us work in institutions where it's available and so you know i'm interested in hearing from your journey and then uh you know having the listeners kind of relate in terms of like their journeys yeah so you know, I, I'll preface by saying I think that, like, I, I would have always ended up addicted to something at some point. I think kind of opiates were the fast track there for me. Um, after I got sober, my brother and dad got sober. So there's, you know, there's clearly a family component there. But, uh, you know, what 
what, what really kind of got me going was actually an ankle surgery. Um, so I was, you know, prescribed pills by a doctor, um, at, you know, at first, you know, I had one ankle surgery, didn't go well. The doctor was like friendly enough. And I, I say that facetiously <laughs> to, uh, mail me the prescriptions whenever I wanted more. And then I had a second surgery to correct the first one. And frankly, by that point, I was already so addicted to painkillers. It didn't matter, but, you know, said I was in a lot of pain, got more painkillers. And then at some point, a doctor said, hey, you don't need these anymore. And I said, yes, I do. And I live in New York City, so, like, I can get anything I want delivery. And, like, that's what I did. Um, and, you know, that over time resulted in me having, like, a $300 a day habit. And as somebody who, you know, is and was successful, graduated college, actually was in law school at night while starting up my, like, company like, and like very, very high functioning, I would have never thought I would have found myself in a situation where like, I was waiting outside in the rain for like my drug dealer to get there. But like, that's where this brought me. You brought up something that caught my ear, especially, and that is, you know, that you would have become addicted to something. And what I'm finding and what I'm seeing, I'm writing this book right now around overachievers and those that are like constantly overachieving, right? Like, and a lot of entrepreneurs are, a lot of nurses are like, we, you know, it takes like a 3.9 to get into nursing school or 4.0 to get into nursing school. So we're like highly competitive and we're overachievers, but it's interesting the parallels between addiction to, you know, maybe substances or other things in our lives and addiction to like work and addiction to overachieving and addiction to always getting those A's. So it sounds like, you know, there might be not only a genetic component to it, but also like a personality piece around like, you know, there's some folks that might be more at risk for it, especially if they're chronic overachievers, always looking for like that hit of dopamine that we get when we achieve and, and get told that we did something well. Now, you've walked me through kind of how your addiction started. I think a lot of people can really relate to that. A lot of it comes from, you know, surgeries or things that can cause pain and it really highlights how easy it is. Like you don't have to be hanging around with like gang members or, you know, what we, what we traditionally, you know, associate drug addiction with. So you've walked us through kind of how it started. Which is also like what drives the negative stigma. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like important to talk about like those things. And I'll say that like a majority of like the people that I know that are either through accountable or just through my life that are, are struggling with addiction, like aren't gang members. It's moms, <laughs> it's other professionals, it's teachers, doctors, lawyers. It's like it it, it affects everybody. So it's it just like chances are like I can actually guarantee you every person listening to this podcast has somebody that they know and love that has struggled or is struggling with addiction, you know, if, if they're not themselves. Yeah. <sighs> That like literally just like gave me chills just to hear that because it's so sad yet, you know, things that we know it can kill, right? And we know all of the negative things, the destruction that happens in families yet, you know, all of the tension and the finances go to things like cardiovascular diseases, which we definitely want them to have. But um, substance abuse is equally devastating, if not more. And there's things that you can do to prevent it, right? There's like red flags that we can catch prior to it becoming a huge issue. And there's different treatments. Now you shared with me some of like the red flags around like, Hey, maybe I am struggling with addiction. What is the next step? If somebody's like, 
you know, maybe a family member comes up and says, hey, I'm not liking what I'm seeing from you. Or maybe with your staff, you're, you know, you have a suspicion, right? There's narcotics that are going missing or something like that. What is the next step after it's been discovered that there is actually an addiction there? So I I think it depends a lot on the individual, you know, for one, I I think it's really important to get some sort of clinical care involved, even if it's like a therapist, I shouldn't say just a therapist, even if it's just, you know, therapy, because like I said, like a lot of people, like when they're outed with having an addiction, unless like they hit some sort of like internal rock bottom, like will really go to lengths to like deny it being an issue. And that can take time to work through. Also, like, I'll speak for myself, but I think generally when I'm an active addiction and other people are like, we lie. So like, um, like you're also not going to get the truth out of the person necessarily. And a lot of that is a lot of that's driven by shame. Um, in my experience, like nobody wants to be labeled as an addict. It's, it's just not something that like you generally, unless you're me, wears a badge of honor. Yeah. So I I think there's a few things I, I, I think, you know, if you're an employer and you see someone struggling with addiction, give that person the resources to better themselves, whether it's an EAP program that you have access to through your company, or um, even if you know a therapist, you could refer them to, or if there's an HR program, like, like let them, like let them know that that's there for them. But really as an employer, my opinion is that's where your responsibility, like to really manage their addiction is. You know, uh, up up to that point, like past that point, it's you treat it as you would any other employee. Like they have the resources to take care of themselves. But if they don't, then, you know, maybe the organization isn't the right fit for them right now. And and that that might sound harsh, but, you know, the truth is, is like you can't fix someone if they don't want to be fixed themselves. And this is coming from somebody who is a recovering addict. I I, I think if you're a family member, or a friend, or the individual themselves, then, then it becomes a little bit different as far as like, you know, how you get involved. So like I said, like therapy is kind of like, like square one. And, you know, and then there's inpatient treatment, which is like, what people call like rehab, like actually going away somewhere. And then partial hospitalization, which is like five days a week outpatient, IOP, which tends to be like three to four days a week outpatient, and then you could set down from there. Kind of where our program comes in is either somebody who's refusing to go to treatment, like they're not sure if they have a problem, like we'll call them sober curious, um, or, <laughs> <I love that. laughs> or um, somebody like as they're stepping down from that outpatient level of treatment, or even residential as a kind of a continuing care to kind of keep them on the right path. The way our program works, just to kind of talk about that, is somebody comes to our website, signs up. They fill out a questionnaire that tells us about their recovery from there or, or lack thereof. From there, we set up um, a relapse prevention plan with them. So what they're going to do to maintain their sobriety, it could be, you know, support meetings that they go to like AA or smart recovery, uh, exercise, meditation, you know, family goals, journaling. Um, and then we basically text message with them over the week, holding them accountable to those goals and helping them hit those. And then follow that up with uh, random uh, alcohol and drug screening over video chat. And we use saliva-based tests so we don't have to watch anybody pee on camera. Oh, um, <laughs> I was like, hmm. <laughs> yep, so it's all, it's all saliva-based tests. So okay. it's, it's comfortable and you can do it from home. 
What's cool is with our portal, you can invite family members and also your clinicians. So everybody can see how you're engaging with us, your tox results without them needing to like police you and be on your back. Because like for me, when I got sober, my wife wanted to drug test me, which like isn't like a great idea when you're trying to rebuild a relationship. Mm -hmm. So this takes that dynamic out of it. So, so yeah, so, you know, that that's kind of how we work with people pre-treatment, post-treatment, and then treatment in between, which I think is like so important if you're someone with a substance use disorder that you like can't manage on your own. And if you're like me, like I couldn't, I couldn't stay stopped regardless of the consequences for more than a few days is really what it came down to. What have you seen is like some factors that differentiate those that are able to maintain their sobriety versus those that like just continue struggling? So, yeah. So I I would say like, if you think you like, let's say you you think that maybe like you drink or use too much, but it's something that you have control over and it's not really, you know, maybe it's causing some problems, but like not to the point where you think you need to go to treatment. You know, my advice would be to like stop for a year. I mean, if it's not that big of a deal in your life, then stopping for a year shouldn't be that big of a deal. If you're like me, you'll probably be able to at most stop for like a week or two, at which point you'll feel great and then think if I feel great now, so why not go back to using? Feels like, it, you know, I won't go back to the way it was. And what'll happen is you'll start off using like exactly where you left off or worse, and then just find yourself in the cycle if you're like me. If you're not like me, then maybe, maybe you could, you know, ride off in the sunset. But, uh, you know, generally <laughs> that doesn't happen if you're asking that question of yourself. And so what do you think was the biggest thing that helped you keep yourself accountable? So like for me, I actually set up random drug testing um, through like a, a psychiatrist that I was seeing. And that was to a, you know, keep me accountable because for me, my first year of recovery, and I'm someone who's, you know, really involved in support groups, but it takes a while to build up the network. And I got sober at 25. My first year of recovery was like the worst year of my life. My, you know, girlfriend who's not my wife didn't like me so much for obvious reasons at the time. Couldn't hang out with my friends because, you know, they're not addicts or alcoholics, but they were partying. We were 25. And I was just really lonely. And I had, you know, people don't ride into like treatment from addiction winning generally, like, like life's normally not going so hot. And those things don't turn around just because you got sober, you know, getting sober now allows you to deal with those problems, but that's like hard early in recovery. So, you know, having some additional support, like after treatment can really go a long way in helping you, you know, get through those rough patches and, you know, hopefully not be one of that 85% that like restarts that cycle of addiction after going through all that treatment. To me, like being stuck in that cycle of addiction, this is my honest opinion, would be worse than like dying. Um, You know, at least there's like peace in it in there. Like continuing that purgatory just is like the most painful experience I've ever been through. That's a pretty powerful way to explain it. And I think you like painted a perfect picture of addiction. How do you decide whether it's something that you disclose to an employer. So if there's somebody out there who, you know, knows they have an issue, but they're working through it, or maybe they've had even, I've seen like with students, sometimes they'll have, you know, stuff on their records and then they're concerned about not being able to get an NCLEX. Like, how do you decide 
how to disclose or not disclose? And if you're going to disclose it, like, what do you think is the best way to do that? So I, I don't think there's like a right or wrong answer to that. You know, something that um, therapist said to me early in recovery is you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, meaning that like, once you do disclose, like it's out there. And the most important thing to know is that you, you control the dialogue around that. Um, and it, it's your, it's ultimately your choice. I, I, I think generally people are more accepting of it now and it's not as much of an issue um, as far as like, if this is on my record, like I won't be able to be a lawyer or I won't be able to be a nurse. I think like professional boards in general are more understanding that like, that's part of life. And like, it's so great that like, despite that you're here standing before us to get whatever certification or licensure. So, but like from my own experience, I, like I told my close friends when I got sober, but like, I didn't even tell my business partner until two years after we sold the company. And that's because I was, I was nervous that like, he wouldn't trust me. Um, I didn't tell my clients because I was nervous. They wouldn't trust me, obviously, especially early in recovery with, the stats being 85% relapse in the first year. And then like after that first year or two, the reason that I didn't tell people went more from like fear that they wouldn't trust me. Cause at that point I, I think I had built up enough like recovery capital that <laughs> like people knew that I'd been sober for two years and like, I'm okay. Um, that it would be okay for me to disclose and not have any consequences for that. But I had shame. I didn't want, I didn't want people to think less of me. So I, I think that helped me, quiet for you know longer and, and i'd always kind of go back and forth on like whether i should speak out because like i also felt by being quiet i was contributing to the stigma so you know like i said in the beginning it took me a while to get there which is okay but it got to a point where you know i kind of tested the ground with telling t- telling some people that like i worked with that i was sober and like generally the response i got was either you know that's awesome or like you know, that happened to my brother. Like, I'm so glad you're okay. And that's like, so amazing that like, you know, everything you've accomplished since then, or like, I've gotten a few like me too's. So it's, uh, it's, you know, been really like empowering and rewarding actually to kind of like, it's been reinforcing, um, to, to kind of be open about it. Um, so that's kind of my journey, but like I said, it's really, it's, up to the individual. And like, that's the most important thing to decide for yourself. You talked about the shame and we talked about that early on about why, you know, it's, it's really is an isolating disease, right? It's something that you, you know, I I've seen people try to hide it from spouses and kids. And I mean, like it's not hideable, but you do everything you can to try to hide it because it is so shameful and isolating. What do you think we can do as a society or as organizations or as individuals to help reduce that stigma. I mean, we see all of this work going on with like the American Suicide Foundation to really reduce stigma around suicide. And there's a lot of work going on with mental health. I don't hear a lot of work going on with um, substance abuse disease uh, and disorders. So, I mean, what do you, what are your thoughts around like, how can we really make it so that people understand like the, this is, you know, a medical issue that you can be okay with having and we can help you get through it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it, it starts with people like talking about, you know, their stories. Like, I, I feel like a lot of times addiction is like the dirty little secret, literally everybody's family. And like, I, I even had it in my family where like I had people like say like, 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 you don't need to tell people that you're going to treatment. And like that, like that 
you know, like reinforce the shame I felt. So I, I think literally just talking about it um, and being more open about it like we are now. I think there are like organizations doing great things. One that, you know, we recently partnered with called Big Vision in New York it is really focused on building recovery communities for young people that are getting sober. The founder of the not-for-profit lost their son to addiction. So I think continuing to talk about it, um, bring it front and center and, you know, also as leaders, because you know, we're, we're talking about nurse leadership here and nurse executives, like if you host like a happy hour for your team or an event, like make sure it's not just like the bar, like it, it could have alcohol, but like have like non-alcohol options too. have it at like, um, you know, like at like a top golf or, or a bowling alley where there's something else going on also besides this drinking. I mean, chances are if you're, if you're an executive and you put more than 12 employees under you, one of them is, you know, struggling with a substance abuse disorder so or an use disorder. So it's just something as leaders to keep in mind as we're creating culture also. I like that idea. I like it a lot. And I like it because there is this one time I remember I went for a company function. I think it was a holiday party or something. And we all went to this, excuse me, this Mexican restaurant and everybody was drinking and I wasn't. And the first thing everybody was asking me was like, are you pregnant? Like, why aren't you drinking? And I thought it was so bizarre that it was like so mind bending to people that, that they didn't understand that I didn't drink for a reason. I, there was a reason I wasn't drinking and it was not pregnancy. But, you know, like, but if I had been sitting there injecting heroin, like people probably would have been like, why are you using? So it was interesting. There's such a difference in the way that we view alcohol and people will ask you, like, why aren't you a drinker? Like, what's wrong with you? Or are you recovering? That's why, like, you know, we kind of like, I feel like we kind of punish people who don't drink versus like maybe a different substance. We would never question, like, why don't you use that substance? So, you know, just kind of being mindful of that when you're having employee get togethers is a good thing. And don't assume somebody is pregnant because they're not drinking. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's something I didn't have to deal with. Um, so so that, that part's good, but like, and you know, it would make me really uncomfortable like going to events. Cause I would be nervous about like somebody asking me like, why aren't you drinking? And I'd always have to make sure to have like a seltzer with lime. So <laughs> it looked like it was a drink. Me. Yeah. But, you know, then like now I could just bring humor to it. I'm like, I'm just really good at it. So I shouldn't do it. <laughs> I love um, it. I love yeah. it. All right. So, I mean, you're doing big things at Accountable. Um, tell me, tell me who you're working with. What are you up to? How are you helping folks um, stay sober? Yeah. So, so generally, you know, people find us on Google. We, uh, we get referrals from treatment centers and really our focus is to help people kind of bridge that gap in that first year after treatment. Generally, like I said, we also work with some people before treatment and it's to help them reinforce those skills that, you know, they learned while they were there. Um, so, you know, it might be attending meetings, it might be exercise, it might be meditation. We take everything from a, peer support perspective. So we work with the individuals that are with us as other people in recovery. And, you know, we also follow that up, like I said, with random toxicology screening over video chat. And the idea is really to, A, you know, reinforce recovery skills to help somebody build up their own life. B, to give peace of mind to family members that the individual is doing, you know, the right thing and working on their recovery without the family members needing to police, because that's always like kind of an ugly dynamic 
when the family is also trying to heal. Like addiction isn't like a person isn't on an island. Um, you know, addiction really does affect the entire family. So creating space to create healing and trust is super important. And then also kind of the last part is to create an area where the clinicians can get additional information. Because like, like I said, A, when you're recovering from addiction, you see a few different clinicians. So you might see a psychologist, an addictions counselor, a psychiatrist. You're seeing each of those people, you know, one up to a few times a week. And it's hard for them to get a full picture of what's going on when you're not there. And also what you're telling the other treatment providers and what you're working on. So our platform kind of gives a place that everybody can be on the same page to help support that person continue their recovery. I love that. And, um, yeah, we do it affordably. Pricing starts at $99 a month. And typically services like these start at like $2,000 a month. So um, we're, we're really trying to make it where, you know, these services don't increase like the financial stress that a lot of people have when they're going into recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to find out more about um, your accountable, if they're struggling themselves or if they have employees and are just like, Oh my gosh, this sounds, you know, my employee is a wonderful person yet. They have this addiction that we need to resolve. Um, where, where could they reach out and find out more? Yeah, they can go to uh, youareaccountable.com, all spelled out, Y-O-U-A-R-E, Accountable. Um, give us a call at 646-450-7641 or send me an email at matt at youareaccountable.com. Awesome. And then you is spelled Y-O-U. Y-O-U, all spelled out. Awesome. All right. Well, Matt, this has been um, really great. I mean, I think we are starting to peel off some layers that are not comfortable, right? They're just things that we don't talk about yet. If we don't address them, we're going to continue on the path that we're on. And we cannot have nurses and doctors and all of these different healthcare clinicians taking great care of patients if they're struggling themselves. So I really appreciate you and all of the work that you're doing. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, It was a joy to have you on. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye. 